This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, Episode 90. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump into today's interview. My guest today is my friend, Anne Garcia. Anne is a Portland-based financial advisor who specializes in college financial aid planning. She advises parents on how to navigate college financial aid, and she writes frequently on this topic on her blog, thecollegefinanciallady.com. She also has a new online video course out on college financial planning at howtopayforcollege.com, and she's offering a discount off her course exclusively to Hack Your Wealth podcast listeners, which I'll talk about at the end of the interview, so stick around for that. I've had Anne on the podcast a couple times in the past, and I invited her back today to talk about her newly published book, How to Pay for College, A Complete Financial Plan for Funding Your Child's Education. We'll also hear about the latest updates and changes to the financial aid process, including simplification to FAFSA that'll fully roll out next calendar year, and key tips to keep in mind when applying for college financial aid. With the new academic year starting up, I think this will be an insightful and informative episode, so stick around for a good conversation, and let's dive in. So how have you been? It's been a while. I know. How, it's, it's been a while. Um, I'm good. The AC is out in our office building, which is oh. super awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very hot right now, too, I imagine. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be like 98 today. Yikes. And it was a hundred yesterday. So like you walk outside and it's really pleasant still. You come in, and it's like um <clears throat> fully clothed in the sauna. Yeah. Well, um, I, I hope you can stay cool and, and get <laughs> stay hydrated. Yeah. How have you been? Uh I've been well. It's been busy. Um, it's been you know, hotter than normal, but not uh, not anything like it's uh been impacting. Uh, like the Northwest and the Great Plains and the Midwest, et cetera. It's been really brutal summer, I know. Yeah. Where in the Bay Area are you again? I am uh, in the, the peninsula, the Southern Peninsula. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm not in the city, but uh, uh, we're close to it. Yeah. So um, so I read your book. This is it right here. Excellent. <laughs> it's kind of blurring out. Yeah. I hit the microphone, I think. But um, uh, I, I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes, too. But um, I guess I wanted to start out. I, I, I thought it was really nice that um, you kind of wove in a bunch of anecdotes uh, about your own experience and your own kids. And um, uh, just curious, like, how are your kids, like Gabby and Alex now? Are they juniors now, seniors now? They're going to be seniors um, this fall. And so they both have internships this summer. And, you know, the, the funny thing that I find, like, looking at the two of them this summer, because, you know, she's at 
uh, one of those schools and he's at a normal school and they both have internships with fortune 500 companies this summer Yeah, in their field of study. And, you know, so I guess sort of further goes to the point that there are lots and lots of pathways to success. And in fact, I think he might even be making a little bit more money than she is. <laughs> That's excellent. You must be but very proud. They're having a good time and um, hoping they'll get job offers from the two companies. He's at Ford. And so with all the layoffs going on, um, he's not terribly certain that, that there's going to be an offer for mm. him at the end of the um, summer. And their whole, he's in finance and their whole finance department is remote. And so he's like, I have a job that I only work for one person. And, Mm. you know, he's like, there's a lot of other interns that are more cross-functional. And so I feel like if there's pressure about who's going to be hired or not, I don't have a lot of advocates and I don't have any way to get a lot of advocates. I see. I see. um, And she's at United. Um, It's been a little bit harder to travel this summer than it was last summer. You know, no first class trips to Amsterdam for 4th of July or. (laughs) Sure. Are you thinking like, are they going to, do you think they'll come home after graduation or stay in their college cities or move elsewhere? She, um, she would like to stay in Chicago. Um, I, I mean, I don't think she'll ever live in Portland again. Not that she has anything against Portland, but I feel like she's really found her people. Mm where she is. Um, and he is open to going lots of other places. I mean, he's really liked his internship, so he's hoping he'll get an offer from Ford. Um, and even, even though it would be remote, he would move to Michigan. Hmm. Um, if he did that, my, my husband's from there, so he's got his whole extended family there. You know, he's staying with aunts and uncles and grandparents, um, this summer. Um, I mean, the hard thing on the West coast is just the time of day. <laughs> yeah. One of yeah. his friends who's an, who's an intern in finance at Ford is from LA and is in LA and they have a daily eight 30 Michigan time meeting. Oh, wow. Okay. So this yeah. Kid, 21 years old and he's on a zoom call at five 30 every morning. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty rough. Yeah. Um, So, and how are mom and dad feeling about, you know, kids not coming home and, you know, moving to different cities or staying in different cities? It's weird. I mean, we're, we're downsizing because they're gone and there's no point in being in the, you know, big family house. I was Mm -hmm. joking with some friends over the weekend. It's good that moving keeps you so busy because it prevents you from getting overly sentimental. (laughs) Like, oh, more of this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Okay, well, um, I, we're here obviously to talk about your book. It was an, it was a great read. This is like definitely one of the better um, uh, personal finance, just in general, you know, let alone college financial planning books that I've read. That's I'm not being paid to say that, by the way. Um, but uh, I wanted to kind of get into. Um, so the thing I liked about it was just very like no nonsense, you know, no fluff, just kind of straight to the point, and kind of covered all the aspects that one would need to know from start to finish, and. Uh, I wanted to start by just understanding, like, why did you decide to write this book? I mean, there's lots of financial aid books and guides out there. Why this moment? What makes your book different? Yeah, well, so a lot of it was just prompted by the by the pandemic. I mean, there we were in spring of 2020 with a whole bunch of time on our hands. And I thought, uh, you know, it's something that I had toyed with in the back of my head for a long time, having, you know, written a blog about college planning for 
going on 10 years, <laughs> you know, at that point I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe I could organize this all into a book and now would be a good, a, a good time to, um, to do that. And, um, and just as I started thinking about it, I was listening to an industry podcast and one of the hosts said, you know, it was, it was about writing for your practice and they were talking about doing a blog. And one of the hosts said, you know, the great thing about doing a blog is it's really easy to turn it into a book. And then he said, and by the way, um, there aren't very many books in our industry by women. So if you're a woman who wants to write a book, I want to help you. And so, um, um, one of those things was true. Um, he did want to help me and was very helpful. Um, the other one that it's easy to turn a blog into a book is maybe, maybe less true. It was a whole lot more work than I expected, um, than I expected that it would be, but it was a, it was a fun project and, uh, and, and I'm glad it's done. Okay. Um, so let's kind of to open, let's kind of set the stage for how important it is to get college financial planning right in the first place. So for a parent sending their kid to college, say next year, this upcoming year, mm-hmm. what is the cost of attendance range that they're going to be staring down if they have to pay full sticker price for a four-year nonprofit university, kind of spanning low to high, public to private, like basically how expensive is college today? Yeah. So, so the list price of college today is, is very high. You know, your, your public universities, your, your four-year flagship schools are going to run, you know, 25 to $45,000 a year, um, full price. Um, just tuition or all in that's all in usually room, room and board. And I mean, obviously there's some there, there's some room around those, those numbers, you know, um, there are definitely some outliers on, on both ends, you know, private colleges, many of them are $75,000, $80,000 a year or more list price. But I think one of the really important things that families need to understand is not very many people pay list price. And while, while tuition inflation for list prices has been quite high um, forever, um, you know, averaging five or six percent per per year. Um, the actual net cost that families actually pay really hasn't budged for the last decade. So, so, so while those list prices are going up, and while there are certainly plenty of people who are willing to pay those list prices, that doesn't mean that your family has to pay that much. In fact, for last year, the average tuition discount rate across four-year colleges was about 54%, which means that for every $1,000 of tuition that is being charged, $540 of it is not paid. So only $460 dollars is actually coming out of anyone's pockets. And, and so, um, and, and so, so those are really the numbers that families should be thinking about far less than the 75 to $80,000, but the, what is college actually going to cost my family? College is a lot like air travel, you know, you and your, your seatmate on the airplane could be paying vastly different prices for the exact same service. Okay, so if if you just follow the the growth lines, so for parents of say young children, toddlers who are going to be sending their kids to college in fifteen years, uh, which is about when I'd be sending my kid, which like 
on the current path, if it continues, what is the cost range they're going to be facing? Again, full sticker price, four-year university, low to high <laughs> at the current rates. Yeah. I mean, if, if current trends continue, you know, you're looking at double the current rates. I mean, at 6%, at 6% increase per year, 15 years, you're going to be more than, more than double um, where you are right now. And part of me says that's completely unsustainable, but I also look back to when my kids were your kids age. And I thought that the path we were on at that point was unsustainable as well. So um, the, 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 thing, the thing is, if you look at any of any of these, uh, you know, any of the higher end private colleges, anywhere between a quarter and a third of students there, their families are not even filing the FAFSA or the CSS profile. So they walk in there expecting to pay full price. And so while normal people talk about this is not sustainable, not acceptable, not something my family can do. If you're a college and you're seeing lots and lots of people are willing to pay the cost, why wouldn't you keep raising it? Right, right. Um, help us understand why college costs so much uh, today. I mean, the sticker prices today are pretty breathtaking compared to what college cost, you know, even when I was a college student, which I, I guess was a long time ago, but doesn't feel like a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that go into the that go into the cost of college. I, I think one of the big ones is just the increase in um, in administrative and other service costs um, that are in colleges. You know, there's far more far more um, you know career counseling and far more academic advising and far more support services than when you and I went to college. And if you think of it, you know it's in a, in a way it makes sense. Like the risk of failure at college is much higher than it was when, when I went. (laughs) Um, And so, so colleges do have much greater incentives to make sure that students get through in four years and to provide all the, you know, all the, all the support that goes along the way. My husband jokes when he, my husband went to university of Michigan and at his orientation, they said, you know, look to the person at your left, look to the person on your right, at least one of you isn't going to be here at graduation. Um, and no college would ever say that anymore. You know, they all want to tell you, you're all going to be walking across the stage four years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big piece of it. I think this year there's been a, you know, a huge growth in, um, you know, colleges are experiencing all the same inflation pressures that are everywhere else in, you know, in, in the economy. And, um, and so there are going to be some raises just on, just on that basis, you know, at the state level, um, while higher ed funding as a share of the budget, um, has maybe stayed relatively constant, the number of students going to college is much higher than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, and the end result of that is increased need for facilities, construction, um, increased hiring, um, you know, in many cases, like in the UC system, opening new colleges. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and in many states, that's, you know, that's part of it as well. And all of those have costs that, that, trickle down, you know, not to mention on the public side, you have the, the impact of pension, you know, pension costs, um, at the state level impacting, you know, impacting budgets. And unfortunately, um, you know, students are, are, are footing the bill for their professor's pensions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So, 
Um, so, I mean, it makes, you know, financial aid all the more important and, and knowing about it and, and knowing, you know, how to get it. Uh, and I think it's pretty natural for parents to think about financial aid from the vantage point of being the recipient. You basically want to reduce your expected family contribution, your student aid index as much as possible so that you can get as much financial aid as possible and not have to take out a bunch of expensive loans or give up your retirement. But could you shed light on how colleges view financial aid? Like, what are the goals they're trying to accomplish with the finite number of dollars that they can grant or award as scholarships or disperse as loans? Help us sort of understand their mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's really helpful to look at things from the perspective of, of the colleges. Um, and, you know, we tend to, we let, we let the, the Stanford's and Harvard's of the world drive far too much of the college narrative. And in fact, most colleges operate very differently than do Ivy League um, schools. Most colleges are actually actively trying to um, attract and enroll students. Um, um, so, so when we have this vision in our head of college being this super exclusive experience and we'd be lucky to get in and we'll do whatever it takes to, you know, to, to go there if our, if our kids get in. That's really not how the college landscape works. And so colleges use the dollars they have available to them to attract the students that they want to have in their, you know, in their community. Putting together a college class is a lot like putting together a football team or an orchestra or, you know, any other multi, you know, multifunctional entity, you know, you can't have all punters on a football team. You need a quarterback, wide receiver, just linemen and whatnot. You can't have all piccolo players in your, in your orchestra. So, um, so, so colleges use their financial aid budgets to bring in the students that they want and they use them very differently. You know, different schools have different wants. Um, one, you know, one thing that a lot of people aren't maybe as aware of is, for example, smaller private colleges love to be able to say that they have students from all 50 states. So if you are a student from, say, North Dakota, it's quite possible that you are the only student from your state applying to that college and they really want you to go. And so chances are good that you will get that offer. And so, and, and most students apply to colleges within about a 200 mile radius of their home. So looking beyond that is a great way to get more aid. Um, other schools are trying to um, recruit a more diverse student body. And those schools will often um, focus on need-based financial aid as opposed to merit scholarships um, to, to broaden the pool of students who can, who can potentially attend there. And then lots and lots of colleges want to become more exclusive, want to move up in the U.S. news and World Report college rankings, um, all of those things. And so they tend to offer merit scholarships to students with good grades and good test scores. Um, um, so, so lots of different ways that colleges use their budgets, but I think an important thing, an important consideration when you start looking at the landscape of schools and deciding who, you know, where you're gonna apply is how, how is that school funded? Because that's gonna have a big impact on what dollars are available to you. So a school that's largely funded by tuition has limited means to discount tuition. A school that's largely funded by its endowment has a lot more, has a lot more options. And a school that gets state funding has a different set of options. 
Got you. So, um, you know, so when I look at the kind of the U.S. news rankings, which, you know, probably have more authority over perceptions and decisions than <laughs> they should, but nevertheless, they you do. Know, there's an actual conference that schools go to that's all about the rankings and how they work and how how to move up in the rankings. It's kind of sad, actually. The tail is <laughs> wagging the dog there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what if, if you were to go down the rankings kind of roughly at what numerical cutoff in the rankings would you say that the uh, the considerations that you just described um, actually really start to kick in? So, you know, if you're if you're Harvard College, you you're going to get kind of all that stuff automatically that you described. You're going to get great students from all the states, et cetera, et cetera. But as you move down, it's going to be harder and harder. Um, and I was curious, like, is there a heuristic that, you know, listeners can think about for, you know, is it, is it at 50? Is it at 100 that uh, the colleges really start to have to work harder to, you know, fill the class with uh, a diverse collection of students, all 50 states? They want to use things like merit scholarships, all, all the things that you just described. Yeah, so so I think there's it's almost like a bell curve. So you've got on the one hand the most selective schools out there. You know, the the Ivies, the Stanfords, the whatnot. None of those schools offer any merit scholarships because being fabulous is just table stakes to get in. Right. And so so they don't offer any merit scholarships, but they're extraordinarily generous with need based financial aid and and kind of their approaches. We want everyone who we admit to enroll. And and so um, so their their yield, which is the percent of of admitted students who enroll for most of those colleges is colleges is maybe 80 percent or higher which means they don't have to admit a whole lot of students, but they do have to make sure they all, they all attend. So, so those schools tend to be really generous, but even within that top tier, there, there are some different levels like um, UChicago, um, for example, gives national merit scholarship and uses the FAFSA, not the CSS profile. So their need-based awards are almost in almost 100% of cases going to be more generous than need-based awards from, from other schools of, you know, of comparable academic profiles. So then you have the next group of schools. So, so, so the top tier, very focused on need with a few exceptions in there. The next tier of schools, maybe schools 10 through 25, in our experience of applying and in looking at their websites and seeing what they offer, those were the least generous schools. Um, so so for, for reference, my, um, and I talk about this a lot in, in my book, my, uh, my daughter applied to 10 different colleges and her, her cost of attendance, we, we didn't bother applying to anywhere. She wasn't gonna get any, um, any financial aid. Um, her, you know, her um, actual costs in the award offers she got ranged from about $11,000 a year to about $56,000 a year. So, so big, big range of numbers, <laughs> um, big range of numbers in there. And we found the least generous ones were kind of that next tier down from um, sort of the, the little Ivies or the Ivy plus schools. Um, 
tended to be the least generous. Once you get below those schools <clears throat> where you have colleges that are accepting, you know, probably half of applicants um, or more um, and who want to be top 25 schools or top 50 schools or top 100 schools in their categories, those are the ones where you start seeing much more, much more generous um, scholarship offers. I see. So is it fair to say like, you know, roughly 20, number 25 is kind of where you start to see that inflection point, you know, happen for real? Um, probably somewhere, somewhere around there. It's going to vary from, from year to year because, you know, the rankings vary from, from year to year for lots of reasons. Think yeah. Columbia. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a little bit, um, like of a smaller number than I expected because they're, they're definitely good schools, sub 25. Yeah. Um, they're fantastic schools, sub 25 they're fantastic schools. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was and, curious if you, and just because, you know, and just because U S news doesn't put them in the top 25 doesn't mean they're not great schools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, U.S. News has a specific set of criteria, and they're not necessarily the criteria that are going to make this the best college experience for your child. Why are the ones from, you know, roughly 10 to 25 the least generous? Um, because those are, they're good schools. I assume <laughs> when they admit students, they want them to enroll to improve their yield. And also, so it's less work for them. Uh, and they're, you know, they're desirable too, you know, like there are good, there are fantastic schools, 10 to 25, yet why are the, they uh, sort of so ungenerous? Because they can be, honestly, is the answer. I mean, one of the things I thought was so interesting with those schools, there's, there's, there's Ivy League acceptance day, you know, all the Ivy League send out their acceptance letters on, or emails on, on the same day. And then most of the schools in that next tier send out their acceptances the day after mm. on the assumption that, you know, you're not going to make a decision about, and I won't list any school names here <laughs> about the, this school until you've heard from Yale or Stanford or, um, or wherever else, you know, they know that all those same kids who are applying to the Ivies are applying to their schools and they're going to get mm. the ones who don't get accepted to the, to the Ivies, which is the majority of applicants there. Yeah. And is it also then a fair assumption to say most of those also will not uh, go, most of those students will not matriculate lower than 25. So in the 10 to 25 range, they, they've kind of captured the, uh, the, the, the remaining students who, who don't accept the Ivies. Is that? Um, a, a lot of them, you know, it's, it's funny for us on the West coast because we have great public universities here and great students go to our great public universities, but that is not the case consistently across the, across the country. I, I talked to so many families who just wouldn't even consider sending their kids to a public, um, university. Mm. Um, and so, and so, yeah, they are, they are looking to hear from, from those other schools and they will choose one of them. Mm. Okay. Um, so in, in one of your early chapters in the book, you, you lay out a kind of roadmap or timeline for tasks like key tasks and conversations that parents should do to prepare their child and their finances for the cost of college. And it progresses from the time kids are born to the time they're submitting their applications. Could you kind of walk through some of the key highlights of the major tasks and conversations that parents should be doing at each of those major milestones of their child's growth to be well prepared for this 
you don't necessarily have yeah. to get into all the detail, but maybe just hit some of the highlights would be, would be awesome. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one of the most important things to remember is the earlier you start to plan, the more choices your child will have. That's not to say that it matters what preschool you go to. It just matters that you are disciplined and intentional about your savings and that you have a clear set of goals and values for your family. So as you know, I always recommend that as soon as you are pregnant, set up a 529 account. Why? Because you got more time then than you will for the next 18, 18 years. And because people are going to be giving you money. And so, you know, so get your 529 account set up as early as possible. When kids are very young, it's so helpful for the parents to have conversations among themselves about what their expectations are for, for college. Um, not just, not just we're going to pay for college or we're not going to pay for college, but is college something that you see as an essential step in life? Um, you know, do you have strong feelings about public or private colleges? Have those conversations among yourselves when, um, when your children are, are young and, and get on the same page about where, where you see that and how you're going to communicate that. That doesn't mean that you have to agree on everything. It means you have to agree on how you're going to communicate to your children in a respectful manner, manner that incorporates both, um, you know, both parents' points of view. Um, as they get older, you know, getting into elementary school, I always feel like that's a great time to just incorporate college into your everyday conversations. You know, maybe it's talking about friends you made in college. Maybe it's going to a college football game. Maybe it's, um, you know, um, something, you know, some fun fact you learned in, in a class you took in, um, in, in college, you know, those are, those are good conversations to have with young, with young kids, just introducing the, the concept of college as a, you know, as something that you'd like to put on, put on their radar screen. Um, I also think, you know, as your parent, as your kids transition from daycare to, um, to school, it's a great time to increase your contributions to your 529. And in fact, I would recommend every year on your child's birthday is a great time to increase your contribution to, um, to your 529. You know, once kids hit middle school, I think it's really valuable to start some actual college planning. Um, one thing that families can do at that point is do the student aid estimator on the Department of Education website. Um, that'll help you figure out if you're likely to be a candidate for need-based aid or if you should be looking for merit aid. It's also a great time to look at what scholarships your in-state public schools offer because you can make sure that you're on the right academic trajectory once you get to high school to, to get there. You know, once students are in high school, freshman year is a great time to really look at your budget and, um, and come up with a good, um, you know, come up with a good sense of what, what you can pay for both from savings and from cash flow. Um, and of course that'll change over the, over the years, but having that as a starting point that lets you know, Hey, do we need to do more? Are we okay with what we've got? Um, and you'll have a sense of what academic trajectory your, your kids are on. That's also a great time to start talking about college costs with your student. I think those conversations need to be goal-based, which means not, you can only go to a public school because that's all the money we have, but hey, we would like you to get through college with a minimum of student debt. We have saved enough where we can, we know we can get you through a public school with no debt. You might be able to find some other 
options that work with our budget as well. And we will absolutely support you in, in that process. Um, and again, look at your savings rate, look at your budget and start, start building a spreadsheet of colleges that you're interested in and, um, um, and tracking what, what they're likely to cost someone like you. My book has a really detailed plan for all of this. So, um, so, you know, check that out and, and it walks you through all the, all the checkpoints there. Okay. Um, in your book, you talk also about how important it is for students, um, you know, as they're approaching the application season to do the official school tour and also to respond to emails and other contact from schools they're interested in because uh, that demonstrates interest, which is an input to both admissions and financial aid uh, at many colleges. After all, they want to admit students who are going to enroll uh, because that allows them to increase their yield, decrease their admission rate, good for US news ranking, uh, makes, makes sense. Do you have any insight on how colleges actually use the info like when you respond to outreach or tour the campus, do you get put on a watch list of some kind for those uh, admissions and financial aid review committees? Um, yeah, and it's it, so it's different at every school. I mean, and I mean, honestly, that's the challenge of college planning is every school has their own set of processes and criteria and priorities and 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 everything else. But um, for schools that track um, demonstrated interest, which is a lot of them, basically they're just looking for, have you done something to interact with us? And I think a lot of students are under the mistaken impression that because they're getting an email from a college, that means they're in the college's database. And it doesn't mean that it means that the college bought a list of people who had an ACT score above X number mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, some other, some other list that they're on and, and, and got it. Um, colleges are more likely to admit students who they think are going to enroll. And they're more likely to give good financial aid packages to students who are, are likely to, um, to enroll. And, and so by, by demonstrating interest, um, you, you do increase your chances of admission at a lot of schools. That is, I'd say that's not the case at a large public school. It's not the case at, um, at many more exclusive private schools, but it, lit- it costs you nothing. And so if a school is important to you, um, follow them on social media, respond to their email. There's a reason why they're offering something in that email and that's because they want you to respond and get in their database. And yes, they're gonna continue marketing to you, um, but you're not in their database until, until you've engaged with them. And similarly, if you're going to, if you're going to visit a college, don't just walk around the campus by yourself. Do the official tour. I mean, you're going to learn things on the official tour that you're not going to learn, um, you know, that you're not going to learn just from, from walking around, but you'll also be in their system as someone who's interested in their college. The, you know, one of the few silver linings of the pandemic is um, schools have terrific tools to engage students without the student making, making a visit. You know, they're great virtual tours on their websites. You can reach out and say, hey, I'm interested in studying math at your college. Can I talk to someone in the math department? And chances are good that you will talk to someone in in the math department. You can ask them to put them in to put you in touch with, you know, if it's a school that's across the country, put them in touch with students from your area. Um, And so there are lots and lots of 
easy ways to engage with the college. So you are doing yourself a disservice in the admissions and the aid processes if you if you don't do that. So, uh, so I, I understand you mentioned that kind of some of the more selective schools, let's say above rank 25, it probably doesn't matter because they're going to get good applicants anyway. They're going to not going to have too much of a problem filling their classes. Uh, you also mentioned large in-state public uh, uh, you know, colleges that it doesn't I think I heard you say it doesn't uh, matter so much there, and I was wondering why. Well, so so colleges do admissions um, one of two ways. One is holistic admissions when you they look at the full package of the student, and the other is just numbers based. Um, there's a, a, a um, there's a, a guy who writes a great college admissions blog who compared it to the Olympics. It's like the difference between track and ice skating, right? So at those big public schools. By and large, you're going to get admitted if your GPA is above a certain threshold and if if they require test scores, if your test scores are above a certain threshold. They might require you to submit your Common App essay, but there's a good chance that they won't read it because they're going to admit all the students who meet certain numeric criteria. Other colleges that do holistic applications, you know, look at the whole person, the, that's where things like demonstrated interest can be more um, can be more important. And you can look on um, on the College Data website, which is just collegedata.com. Um, it shows whether demonstrated interest is something that a college that a college mm-hmm. tracks. But again, it costs you nothing to demonstrate interest. And so, why run the risk that it mattered to the college and you didn't do it because you thought it didn't? Right. Okay. So that makes sense. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about FAFSA. Um, your book does a nice job explaining the FAFSA process, how it works. So, you know, for all those details, I'll just point listeners to your book. Um, but could you talk a little bit about any important changes and updates to the FAFSA process, including, you know, the, the move towards simplification that are now starting to roll in or are upcoming in the next one to two years that uh, parents should be aware of? Yeah, so so um, a couple of years ago, a bill was passed as part of part of the pan- one of, part of one of the pandemic um, relief bills that had a section called FAFSA simplification, and the goal was to make it less cumbersome to um, to file the FAFSA. And I won't go into a lot of editorial detail about how I would have simplified the FAFSA, which would have been different from this. But um, there are kind of four big areas of change um, in the FAFSA that are being phased in this fall and. And, and next fall. Um, the, the big one that's gonna impact a lot of people is currently your expected family contribution is, um, is based not only on your family, your parents' income and assets, student income and assets, but also, and the size of your household, but also it's divided by the number of students in college from the family. Um, and that is going away. So instead of it being expected family contribution for the whole family, it's the student aid index, which is per student. So families who in the FAFSA formula were, were having a low EFC because of having multiple children in college, their EFC will, will change um, just due to the FAFSA not considering, um, not considering how many kids are in college anymore. Another big change is um, in the current um, in the current FAFSA. There's a question um, which is money money paid on your behalf, and that basically is asking you: Did anyone else 
contribute to your education. The big source where this comes into play is when grandparents have set up 529s for the kids and the kids take the money out. That turns into income to, to the student um, in that year. That question is going away. So it's basically a freebie for um, grandparents who are, who are saving for college. Another, um, another area of change is for divorced families. Um, under the current FAFSA rules, the parent with whom the student spends the most time is the custodial parent whose income and assets are reported on the FAFSA. With the changes, it'll be the parent who contributes, who provides the most financial support to the student will be the one who, who fills it out. So this is very impactful for a student whose parents are divorced, Maybe they live with a stay-at-home parent and the other parent is a high earner and pays child support. So under the current rules, only the child support would be a factor in the student's income. Under the new rules, the higher earning parent's income would, um, would be included. And then there are some little adjustments to the formula, you know, changes in um, the income protection allowance um, and a few, um, a few other things. Another big change that isn't really part of how the formula is structured is the expected family contribution is being renamed to the student aid index. Um, it's an insignificant change, but I think it's a good one because the problem with expected family contribution is you might hear expected family contribution and think that's what your family is going to be expected to contribute to college. And in fact, it's at the discretion of the college what they do with your expected family contribution. You know, Do they meet your financial need? all of it, part of it, using grants, using loans. Um, so, so I think it's good that it's being renamed. The new name is um, student aid index. The unfortunate thing is honestly, if they're going to do it as an index, it should just be a number from, you know, maybe it's one to 10, maybe it's one to a hundred, but it's still, you know, a dollar number that looks an, an awful lot like, um, like the expected family contribution. So those are big changes, but there are a few caveats to them, right? So number one is the only place where this is the absolutely only formula that's used is in the federal needs analysis methodology. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that is eligibility for Pell Grants, it's eligibility for work study. Um, it's still up to the colleges what they do with all of this information. And many of them will still continue to offer what's called the sibling discount, you know, where you have multiple children in college, because of course your income and your assets can't be, you know, can't be spent twice. They can only be spent, um, you know, they can only be spent one time. The other thing is the CSS profile, which many private colleges require you to fill out, does still ask for the grandparents 529s. You know, they've, the profile has always asked, you know, required you to report all 529s for which your child is the beneficiary. And, um, and, and that certainly, certainly hasn't changed. Now it is entirely possible that one quirky outcome of this will be that it's far cheaper for a lot of students to attend private schools than public schools, because public schools use the FAFSA whereas private schools use the profile and private schools are the ones who can, you know, add their own questions. Um, for example, my daughter's college uses the FAFSA, but then they also have some supplemental questions and they've added a question about how many students are in college to their supplemental questions. Does the CSS profile follow any of these simplification changes at all or not? No, no, they're keeping the, um, students in, um, in college, um, you know, keeping 
reporting of other um, of other 529s. Most CSS profile schools require both parents in case of divorce to report income and assets. Um, not all do. There's actually a list on the College Board website of of which ones which ones do it. But so so these are really just impacting the federal needs needs analysis methodology. Okay. Uh, in your book, you talk at length about 529 plans. Um, could you talk a bit about the different types of 529s and in particular, the difference between the regular state-run 529 plans versus prepaid tuition plans uh, and the private college 529? Like, what are each of these? How do they differ? What are the trade-offs? And who is each one best suited for? Yeah, great question. So, so there are two big buckets of 529 plans. There are 529 savings plans, and then there are prepaid tuition plans. Um, 529 plans are the ones that you think of. They're the plans that are run by states where you sign up, you make a contribution, you choose an investment portfolio, and you experience the market returns that that investment portfolio generates. So that's a 529 savings plan. And that's what most of us think of when we think of a, a college savings um, <clears throat> college savings vehicle. There's another type of plan called a prepaid tuition plan. And in a prepaid tuition plan, you your returns, basically you're buying tomorrow's tuition at today's prices. So your returns are based on the actual inflation rate of one or more um, one or more colleges. There are several states that offer these plans. Typically, they only offer them to state residents. Um, so Washington has one. Um, I think Florida has one. Pennsylvania has one. There are a, a few different um, a few different ones, and and each of them has their own formula for which um, for for which inflation marker is used. So for example, in Washington, it's um, it's the the school with the highest tuition inflation is just the inflation rate that's that's used every year. Um, um, then there's another prepaid tuition plan called the private college 529 and private college 529 is just a consortium of a couple hundred private colleges where if you um, if you use their plan, and um, you get the actual tuition inflation at the college that you um, that you ultimately attend. So I think that prepaid tuition plans are great when you're a state resident, of, you know, when you're a resident of a state that offers one. Um, they are a great addition to your savings plan. Now, one of the things with prepaid tuition plans is the word tuition. So. <laughs> In almost all cases, there are a couple of exceptions, but in almost all cases, prepaid tuition plans can only be used for tuition. So you will need extra dollars for room and board. Mm. And that's where a savings plan is, is a good complement. When you get closer to college, those are a great addition. The other thing to, so there are a, a, a few considerations in deciding between a savings plan and a, and a prepaid tuition plan. You know, One is what prepaid tuition plans are you eligible for? Um, and, you know, does your state offer one or, or not? Um, the other is, do they have any lockup requirements? Mm -hmm. So generally with a prepaid tuition plan, they're assuming that over the long term, they can earn higher investment returns than the rate of tuition inflation, but they will typically require you to keep your money in the plan for three years before you, before you withdraw. Mm -hmm. So, so 
oftentimes, you know, start of high school is a really good time to start adding dollars to those plans. The other big question is what colleges can you use these plans at? Now, most state plans allow you to use those dollars at any other state, you know, at any college. And typically they will give you the in-state tuition inflation rate. Sometimes it's modified down. So, so let's say I'm a Washington resident and I'm in Washington's get prepaid tuition plan. Um, and I, and, and in-state tuition goes up 5% every year. So my account balance is growing at 5% every year. And I can take that 5% growth and use it at any college that I, that I choose to attend. Even outside of Washington? Even outside of Washington. Even private universities? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's a great late stage vehicle when you're, when you're eligible for it, because you're guaranteed a return on, on your, on your dollars, um, with, with no risk to your, to your principal. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is tuition doesn't go up. I see. So, uh, is it accurate to say, so let's just kind of running with the, the Washington example. Is it accurate to say that, okay, I'm a resident of Washington. I contribute to the prepaid tuition plan for Washington. I could actually spend the money at the same schools and maybe even more schools than the private college 529, because I, it sounds like the state run prepaid tuition plan is valid to be used at any school, the private college one, you have to be part of the consortium. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. So most state plans let you use it at any school. They might nominally discount the tuition inflation rate if you go out of state. Hmm. Um, but by and large, yeah, as a, you will, you will get that investment return at any, at any college you use it for. Now the private college plan is different. If you go to one of their member schools, then you get that school's actual tuition inflation. Hmm. If you don't, you get a much lower rate. I think it's about 1.5%. You'd still be, you know, you'd in the current environment, you know, for the past year, you would have done better on that than in, um, you know, than in a state plan, because most of the state plans, you know, have you in, have you in various investment vehicles, you know, bond funds, short-term tips and stuff like that, which still haven't had a, a, a fabulous year. Um, the other, um, the the other thing with um, um, the other thing with uh, <laughs> I'm having a total brain freeze. Um, the other thing with um, with prepaid tuition plans is they typically the tuition price typically resets once a year when tuition prices reset. So in, unlike the market returns that you get in a 529, where you could you know, have where you have a different account balance every single day. Um, in a prepaid tuition plan, you know, you buy a certain portion of a year's tuition and the value of that changes once a year. So a great strategy for anyone whose student is accepted to a private college 529 college in the spring is to buy senior year's tuition that year. Cause as long as you buy it before June 30th, when tuition rates reset, you get senior year of high school's tuition rate for senior year of colleges um, tuition. So for example, my mm-hmm. daughter goes to one of the private college 529 schools after she was accepted. Um, 
I, um, I, I put some money in the private college 529 and we'll be using it for senior year. And, you know, that's been the best performing piece of her 529 over her, over her college years, because it's gotten that, it's gotten that inflation rate. And, you know, we discounted back a year because we bought it at high school seniors tuition rate, not college, college freshmen. So that's an important consideration with prepaid tuition plans is when do the rates reset? Because you want to get your dollars in, in before that it gets you basically an additional year of, of inflation growth. So uh, did I hear correctly that be- because of their lockup requirements, in your case, uh, you contributed senior year of high school knowing it could only be used, that portion could only be used senior year of college? Is that correct? Yeah, I think we could have used some in spring of her, her junior year, um, but I, you know, I, I put in money that we were intending to use for college senior year. I see. Um I think, and I think you mentioned a moment ago that because um, uh, when, when you were describing the differences between pre, state-run prepaid versus private college, it sounded like maybe this, the state-run prepaid is always a better deal uh, because um, it applies to you know any as long as you're you're eligible for it, like you're a resident of the state. Let's say um, it can be used at any any college, but in the private college case, you only get the schools. Um, tuition that you actually matriculate at, and then if you end up not going to one of those schools, I think you said you only get one point five percent return on what you put in. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think it's one point five percent annually if you don't go to one of their schools. Um, you can check on their website. Yeah, so if anyone's interested, the um, private college five twenty nine website has has that information. Um, but yeah, this you know the state plans are. Um, are much more broadly applicable. Um, however, they're typically only open to residents of the, of those states. Right. Okay. So they're a better deal for a smaller group of people. Yeah. And if you were eligible for both, uh, is the only scenario in which the private college 529 uh, would be better would be kind of a, a more narrow scenario where the state-run inflation number is exceeded by the private college uh, that you actually attended that was a member of the private college 529 who's in, who actually raised their rates even more than the state rate that you would have gotten right okay right and you. and typically that's going to be the that's going to be the case um, but but you know the the thing that's nice about the state run plans if you're a resident of those states you have a much longer runway to invest in that plan knowing that it can be used at any college and will get that that inflation rate whereas the private college plan because it's got a limited pool of schools that it's eligible for you know you may know that your kid's going to go to one of those schools you may have five kids and you know that one of them is going to go to one of those um, one of those schools but by and large yeah if you have access to a state run prepaid plan that's going to be, that's going to be a better option for you. So it sounded like in prepaid and, and actually both the prepaid and the private college 529, you're not investing in risk assets with your contributions. It's more like a defined benefit pension plan. You're guaranteed yeah, it's almost defined- like an insurance contract. Okay. So there's no upside if the market performs better than tuition growth, but there's also no downside if the market underperforms tuition growth. Is that correct? Right? Correct. And so that's why, you know, typically it makes the most sense. Like if you're a resident of a state that offers that you will probably get 
better investment returns in the savings plan in the early years, and you will probably get better returns in the prepaid plan in the later years. Again, keeping in mind, there are limitations on what the prepaid plan can be, you know, the prepaid tuition plan in most cases can only be used for tuition, not for room and board or books. Is there um, a time, you know, that you would advise parents thinking about kind of the, the trajectory leading up to college attendance where they should switch their contributions from savings to prepaid? Like, is there like T minus six years you might consider switching? Is that a thing? Um, so I think it depends a lot on the family, on their savings rate, their risk profile, and so on and so forth. And then again, how much, you know, how much money they're planning to pay out of pocket for, um, for college too. Um, for the most part, you can look at the investment returns, you know, one year, three year, five year, 10 year investment returns for any of the portfolios in your 529 plan. So a good exercise is to look up what the tuition inflation rate, you know, for, for those who are eligible for, um, for a prepaid plan, look up what the tuition inflation rate has been historically in that plan and compare that to the investment returns in, um, you know, in your savings plan for those close to college years, um, you know, to have money available for freshman year in college, you need to start transitioning it over freshman year of high school. And you can typically roll funds from, from savings to, um, to prepaid, um, as long as you do it within one of their, you know, within one of their signup windows. So, so, so that's usually, you know, high school is usually a good time for a family that's really risk averse though, who doesn't, you know, isn't at all comfortable with what they've seen in 2022, for example, um, or just doesn't like the volatility, um, you know, prepaid plans are a great option because you will typically get at least, you know, four or 5% um, return every year without, without any ups, ups and downs. You know, I do think by and large for younger ages, you know, up to five, six, seven years old, you will probably do better in the savings plan. Um, and you know, after that is probably the time to start thinking about prepaid. Mm-hmm. Do you, huh, so do you, let, let's say, um, uh, you mentioned the, the convertibility. I want I do want to circle back to that in a moment, but do you recommend that parents consider converting from savings to prepaid again, assuming their state offers it, they're eligible, um, in order to just in the last few years in the run-up before attendance, just take the risk off the table. I, I think it can be a great, a great strategy. Um, like you said, it takes risk off the table. It guarantees a return, you know, with interest rates going up, it's possible that the later, you know, the closer to college years of saving, you know, of age-based portfolios will start having better returns. But for the last few years, you know, your, your money's been kind of parked and not doing much in, you know, in those, in those close to college portfolios where it's, where it's largely invested in bonds. Um, so, so, you know, reducing risk while guaranteeing yourself a return is, is usually a pretty, pretty good strategy when you're close to spending the money. Okay. Um, so, uh, 
we talked a little bit about the prepaid plans being, you know, offered by the um, uh, by the state, and often will have residency or like state, you know, domicile, whatever um, uh, requirements to sign up. But who administers private the private college five twenty nine? It's not a state, it's, I assume. No, it's not. It's a it's an organization called the private college five twenty nine. And so they administer it. They have their own investment manager. They, um, they work with the colleges to, you know, get them to sign up for the plan. And they're the ones who, um, who assume the investment risk. Are all of the top 25 private universities and colleges, um, top 25 by us news anyway, members of the private college 529? No, there's, um, there's a subset of them. I want to say it's a it's a couple hundred colleges. I'm looking at um, I'm looking at Massachusetts, for example, and Amherst and Smith and MIT, um, Wellesley, um, to name a few. Okay. Um, are Harvard's not? Hmm. Okay. Um, so we were talking a little bit about con- converting. Uh, 529 from savings to prepaid a moment ago. So it sounds like you can roll uh, uh, a savings, a 529 savings plan into a prepaid plan. Can you also roll it into a private college 529? Yep. And if you have leftover money from your prepaid or private college 529, can you roll it back to a savings plan if should you so desire? It does yeah. only a one-way direction. No, it's um, you can, you can, transfer them between, um, between account types, um, the same way you can any other, any other 529 funds. And in fact, oftentimes, you know, when people realize, for example, that they have too much in the prepaid tuition plan and they actually need money for room and board, they can roll it out to a savings plan and use it for, for room and board. Gotcha. So let's say your 529 ends up having a surplus for whatever reason, maybe your child doesn't end up attending one of the participating colleges in the case of the um, private college 529 or doesn't attend a degree granting or FAFSA eligible institution, whatever it is. Uh, in those cases, uh, what are the taxes and penalties that apply when you withdraw the money, presumably for you know, non-qualified expenses? Yeah. So if you do a non-qualified withdrawal for any reason other than that your student got scholarships in excess of your $529, you pay taxes and a 10% penalty on the growth in the account. So let's say hypothetically, you put $10,000 into the account, it's now worth $20,000. Half of that money, half of every withdrawal is gonna be considered growth and subject to tax and and penalty. The thing about the withdrawals is the tax and penalty are paid by the person who receives the withdrawal. So if you, for example, have saved aggressively for your student's college and they get enough scholarship dollars or they choose a college where you're not going to use all that money, you might come up with a plan to get that money out of their account little by little every year. When you distribute it out to the student, it's taxed at their rate and the penalty applies it at their rate. So, you know, there are quite a few dollars you can get out at 0% income tax and 10% penalty on on, on, on growth. Um, you know, there are lots of other options that you have with 529s, um, if, if you have a surplus because the student got scholarships, then the tax doesn't, the, the 10% penalty doesn't apply. You just pay taxes on, um, on the growth. You know, of course you can 
use it for a different beneficiary. You can, um, I heard of one, um, one parent who had extra money and he found a college that had a PGA golf tour <laughs> class and he changed the, his, the accounts beneficiary to himself and used it to take golf lessons. <laughs> nice, nice. So like there are it. definitely some creative ways to do it. You know, if you want to take enrichment classes at your local community college, you could make yourself the beneficiary of, of the plan or, you know, decide there might be a grandkid coming along at some point and you're going to save the money, the money for them. I have, I've worked with a number of families who've had surpluses sometimes because the kid didn't go to college, sometimes because the kid got scholarships and there are lots and lots of good outcomes for those dollars. This isn't like it all goes away if you don't spend it on, on college, you know, one, um, one kid didn't go to college and found a great job, needed a car and was happy to pay a nominal tax bill to have a couple thousand dollars to buy a car so that he didn't have a car payment. So, and it sounds like kind of from the examples you're giving that you can fully control the timing of distributions so that you don't have to take them all in, you know, a year, for example, like there basically no kind of required minimum distribution type of provisions for these cases, right? Correct. I mean, 529s are a great estate planning tool that way because you never have to take the money. You're never required to take the money out under current law. That could all change in the future if there end up being, you know, billions of tax deferred dollars that are not getting not getting tapped out there. But but yeah, you can um, you can control the timing of the distribution. You can control, you know, who who pays the tax on it. You know, you may as you transition from your working life to your retired life, you may have some low tax years where you could take the money out and it wouldn't be a big deal. You know, you could almost treat it as a, as a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, your, your kid may have opportunities um, for that. You could change the beneficiary to someone else who's in a low tax bracket. So there's lots of, lots of things to do there. Yeah. You didn't, it's not like, Oh, you're 22. It's all got to go. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you were talking, touching upon a moment ago, like enrichment classes. And so I was curious, you know, regardless of whatever type of 529 option you choose, whether it's, you know, savings, prepaid, private college, whatever, um, if you did have leftover funds, uh, you don't have another student to use it on. You want to use it on yourself as the parents for say enrichment classes. Uh, what are the restrictions in terms of where you can use it? I mean, I understand kind of the example you gave, you can use it at universities and colleges, but what other kind of educational institutions can 529 money be used at? Like, could I take a cooking class or a sailing class or get my private pilot's license or whatever? Because you know, around that time when your kid's turning 22, you might actually be nearing retirement. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use it at any college where you could take out a student loan. And there's actually, there's a list on the Department of Education's website. So, um, so if you were to take a cooking class to the community college, you could use it for that. You do have to change the beneficiary to be you. Um, if you took a cooking class at, you know, a local <laughs> cooking store, you could not use it for that. Okay. Um, how should parents think about the optimal amount of funds to contribute to a 529 plan? Like I think about the unpredictability of college costs. You don't know, you know, when your child is young, whether they're going to go in or out of state, public or private whether they're going to earn zero scholarships or a full ride, there's a lot of unknowns. And ideally, you don't want to be overfunded either. So maybe the right strategy is to 
contribute an amount you think you're going to use regardless of the unknowns, like a lower bound floor, and don't exceed that even though there's a risk it might fall short of your actual funding needs, like if your child attends an expensive private college with no scholarships. So just curious if you have a framework for how to think about this. Like, is there an optimal amount to contribute given all the unknowns? And you know, for this purpose, let's assume also that your 529 contributions are not coming at the expense of other key contributions like um, uh, tax advantage accounts, you know, your 401k, HSA, FSA, even a backdoor Roth, and even your rainy day fund. So all you're trading off against by making this incremental contributions is personal savings. And at the same time, let's say you're also not a zillionaire. You're not flush with wads of extra savings. So you could use that money to build up a bigger, bigger cushion or just on consumption and enjoying life and not locking it up in a restrictive 529. So yeah. in that scenario, how might parents think about the optimal amount? Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. I mean, that's, and I think that's one of the hardest things for parents to do, because as you said, there's such a range of outcomes and, and, and prices. My recommendation is, is this, your child will have good choices at any price point that's reasonable, maybe not at zero, but your child will have good choices at at any price point. So save what you can, you know, family finances are not linear. Um, however, with that being said, even though they're not linear, you still need to be disciplined and intentional with your savings. So set up an automatic monthly contribution to your 529. Even if it's $10 a month, you're still going to come out ahead for, for, for doing that. So if you start a 529 today, come up with a number that's comfortable for your family. You know, if you're able to contribute hundred dollars a month, that's, that's going to be great. You, you know, um, depending on your child's age and your investment portfolio, you're going to have good, uh, you know, a good amount of savings and good dollars available to you. Just, you know, with that, if it's $20 a month, that's going to amount to something too. Kids who have any amount of college savings, even a nominal amount, enroll in college at higher rates and graduate from college at higher rates than do those who don't. So whatever number it is, do it. <laughs> um, and then what I, what I like people to do is pick a time of the year when you're gonna look at what you're doing and make an adjustment. Maybe it's the month of your child's birthday you know, where you're maybe thinking about how far they've come, you know, getting from five to six to seven or two to three to four, whatever the case may be. But that's also an opportunity to think about who you'd like them to become and, and to set aside maybe some additional money so that you're contributing a little bit more um, every year. It is impossible to plan for the range of outcomes so plan for the range of outcomes that works for your family. You know, my family decided we were not going to spend 75 or $80,000 a year for college. We did save and we were diligent in our savings and we had, you know, a good amount of savings and we had really good conversations with our kids about what that savings translated to in terms of the college opportunities that were available to them. And they both made choices that they're just blissfully happy about and that, that work for, for our family. And we didn't choose schools that didn't work for our family. So there are, you know, there are lots and lots of, lots and lots of, of good choices out there. A lot of it's going to depend on your family values. You know, 
there are families who place a really high value on taking a nice family vacation every year and having that quality time to spend together. That may come at the expense of college savings dollars. And that's okay too, because that's what's important for your family. You know, those relationships are something that matters to you and, and you should be investing in them. So if that's you, that's fine, but just make sure that you are clear in communicating with your children about what their college budget looks like um, and that you are doing something because that whole thing of, you know, save for retirement, not for college, that's how we got to $1.5 trillion in outstanding student, student loan debt. You need to do both. Retirement is a bigger priority, but college has to be right there with it because for most families, college is your second biggest expense after retirement. All right. And what do you most want people to take away after reading your book? The thing I would like people to remember is you have a lot of choices, whatever your family's financial circumstances, whatever your students' preferences and priorities, you have a lot of choices. It just takes some work to, to find them. And so in, you know, in my book, I try to outline all the things that you can do to increase the range of choices available to you. You will also, the sooner you start, the more choices you will have, both because your savings has more time to grow and you have more time to do the research, to clarify your values, to talk with your kids um, and, and all those things about it. But your kid is gonna be awesome because they're an awesome kid. It's, 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 it's not the college they go to that's gonna make them who they are. That's going to make them a more educated version of who they are, but, but being themselves and, um, and, and having some success and some failures and learning some skills and resilience along the way are what's going to make them who they are. All right. I really enjoyed this conversation as usual. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your services? So my book is how to pay for college. It's available from Amazon and bookstores everywhere. Um, and my website is how to pay for college.com. Um, where in addition to the book there, I have my um, college financial plan masterclass. It's really tailored for families who are, you know, really getting started in the, in looking at the nitty gritty of, um, of how they're going to come up with a college plan, you know, researching colleges, coming up with a budget, um, um, finding scholarships and, um, and all that good stuff. So how to pay for college is where to find me, whether it's the book or the website. And uh, your your class, we're doing a, a 20% discount for podcast listeners. I'll include details about that in the show notes page. Check that out there. Uh, hope you check out both Anne's book and the course and uh, you know, look forward to, um, to sharing this with our audience. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. (music) 
Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.